0: AR is gonna change everything. It's gonna change the way we communicate, it's gonna change the way we uh, transact, it's gonna change the way we do commerce, and it's gonna be as profound a shift as, as the smartphone. was. You know, can you remember life before the smartphone? Very different than today. You had to remember how to get places.
1: Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing here at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Ray Kalmeyer. Founder and CEO of Enclue, which he started in 2016 and built and deployed the first wave of spatial apps in augmented reality for the Microsoft HoloLens globally. He now helps enterprises accelerate their spatial transformation with an end-to-end solution which empowers today's workforce with tomorrow's technology. Enclue's mission is to empower creators with transparent technology, and Ray believes in a future where technology fades into the background and people can become more present with each other and their environment. Let's dive in. Ray, welcome to the show. It's great
0: to be here, Justin. Happy to be with you today.
1: Yes. And with Enclue, for people who are not familiar, what are you doing at Enclue?
0: Enclue is a local publishing platform for immersive augmented reality creators.
1: I've seen the videos online. Very interesting, the types of like use cases and everything with this. But I want to always go back to the beginning. Why did you start this company in the first place?
0: Well, you know, that's a great question. I was born the same year as Mario, which means, wow, Mario is getting old. Uh, But I've been making games since I was a kid, and I don't think those two things are are necessarily unrelated. I think that uh, there's a generation of creators, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, and investors now that have grown up understanding and really living the interactive uh, 3D experience. And, you know, I spent two decades building games for companies like Sony, NCSoft, and Ubisoft. And one of the things that was clear back then that I think is, is, is starting to become clear today for the broader uh, technology industry is that the, the tools and technology that enable non-technical developers or creators or designers or artists, those are really what moved the needle in making massive industry shifts. You know, long before uh, anyone could build a website and you could launch a, a store on something like Shopify, You needed to contract an engineer to build an HTML-based or CSS-based website. And that meant that far fewer people had access to build online commerce, and that meant that there wasn't a thriving ecosystem. There was little blips here and there. And uh, I think that a lot of the insights I brought from the games industry is the same thing is true when you're building 3D. There's In a given 500-person team, maybe half the team members are spending their time uh, creating tools and enabling technology for the other creators to be able to fill these complex virtual world up with exciting and interesting content. And really with Enclue, clue the, the goal has been from the start is to empower creators uh, with the same insights that go into making a AAA video game production to empower the creators of the future of the internet as we move from the flat uh, screen-based internet into a more immersive 3D-based internet, uh, which is something that I'd be happy to chat about as well.
1: Real quick on that, you mentioned the other companies you worked at and you have all this experience in that. Why start a company though? Why the company building route, starting this year? Like, I'm curious about that real quick.
0: I, I like pain. I'm a masochist. <laughs> I don't like sleep. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love my job. And I think I'm, I'm one of those classic folks who's at this point probably mostly unemployable. Um, when I was working uh, in corporate, I, I, I have nothing but respect for the incredible teams that I worked with. And I was very fortunate. Uh, I think Tim Ferriss used the term who luck uh the, the people that you meet in your life that can make a meaningful difference. I had a lot of who luck in in mentors and colleagues in my games industry career. Uh, but one thing that happened in nearly every job I was at was that I would see things that were outside of my my core focus. And if I was an engineer, I'd have insights for marketing or I'd have opinions on product or I'd, I'd want to discuss how we were operating the company. And in most corporate structures, that's a no-no. Most corporate <laughs> yeah. structures are... Everyone has their role. Maybe you have a little bit of wiggle room, but you are there to do a thing. There's an already built out machine and you got to fit into that. And that never really fit my personality type. I, when I see something that could be made better, I get passionate about it. I want to change it. I want to build a better world. It is harder for me to see something and not do it than it is for me to take on more responsibility and, and drive for a better result. I just, I'm, I'm hardwired for wanting to fix things and make things better.
1: The passion is obvious with this, with Enclue and everything you're doing with that. And you mentioned empowering creators. Going back to that, when you started EnClue, who would you think like? How did you even acquire these people in terms of getting them to use the use what you're going to offer with Enclue? Get them to understand what you're building with this product because that's that's the core of everything. Like the lifeblood of a company is the customers. So just take me through how you were thinking about that. Who you're going after uh, that side of things?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And there's this common phrase that comes up a lot in entrepreneurship, uh, especially in reference to some of the greats out there, uh, like the reality distortion field. And and what I like to point out with the reality distortion field is that you need a reality distortion field if you are to envision the world differently. So it's it's a double-edged sword there because you need to be able to see something the way it is today. Like, for example, oh, you know, people raise their hands to hail a taxi um, and then also be able to envision, you know what, it could be different. You could be using your phone, it could be connected to a server, and then the taxi could come to you. Um, that's either a hallucination or a vision of a better way of things could happen. And, and I think that when it comes to new technology, one of the, the most interesting and challenging aspects of envisioning the future is really identifying what are the critical points, the inflection points that go from where we're at today to a future that maybe is more obvious the further you go out. Like, for example, I think it's really obvious within 100 years we'll have some uh, human presence on the moon and Mars. That's super obvious. What's less obvious is are we gonna have it in five or ten? Um, and it's probably very obvious that within you know two hundred years we'll figure it out some sort of like quad rotor hovering, hovering craft or something like that. Are we gonna have that in two years? Probably not. It's five years, ten years, maybe. Um, and, and the question then becomes when you're dealing with something like augmented reality or the metaverse as we're now kind of colloquially defining it, uh, what are the pieces of the metaverse that exist today where real value can be derived mm. um, and what, what's missing? in order to create an actual value-generating business, um, not only one that can you know, show proof of concept, but start to aggregate, start to create a positive return, start to generate more value than the money you have to put into it. Um, and, and that's really where I think the, the, the core of your question comes out: who are those creators that are going to start generating that stuff? And when you think about the where the industry is at today and what some of the common problems are for big businesses out there that already exist. Uh, And I like to think of, you know, what are the big businesses that have the most immediate needs because they're the ones that have established partnerships, established customer bases. So if you can tap into solving a need for them, uh, what you can do is you can ensure that you're not just, you know, lying to yourself um, and saying, oh, this is a cool thing. There's so many technologists out there who have a really cool idea and build what amounts to be a solution looking for a problem. Um, Especially folks that have spent their career building. And there's certainly, you know, moments in my career where I fell into that trap. Uh, getting, you know, too attached to some cool architecture or some cool solution to something that I don't need at all. But if you can really identify what's in the industry today, you can start to see what are their needs. And uh, it's a long way to answer your question. I don't know if I answered it, but I can dive further into what the actual creators are doing with technology today. Uh, if that would help uh, provide. A creator. I,
1: I do. I do want to know about that because on your website, like the first thing that pops up, it's like turnkey metaverse platform. And I read that and I'm like, all right, you're obviously this is copy is for very particular people who are trying to do this. So like take me through that. The use cases, how people are using this turnkey metaverse platform.
0: Yeah. So there's a couple of broad categories of folks who are finding value today, Uh, and and they're already in the crossing the chasm metaphor. They've already crossed the chasm. There's already established ROI. There's great case studies that are now a decade or half a decade old. There's entire cottage industries that have built up a massive TAMS behind it, and it's really about just providing more value to those industries so that you start replacing old processes with new processes. And then there are some areas that are just right on the precipice. The the chasm is nearly bridged, and there's some early pioneers. And Enclue kind of exists in different verticals in different ways. Now, our primary vertical right now, when we think of uh, traditional value add, where most people are going to just go like, oh yeah, I get that immediately, is going to be education. So, it turns out that we did not evolve to read books. Turns out that's a relatively modern invention. We did not evolve to see things flat even. As, as ama- amazing as screens are, as amazing as books are, uh, there's hundreds of thousands of you know language evolution that did not evolve with flat media. So, so why is that important? Because our brains are used to making models of things in 3D. And you need to take from I me. Mean, there's a lot of great data. There's a lot of great research out uh, showing this, that we learn better if we can make a 3D model If we can move around something. If we can see something in 3D, we learn much faster. Oftentimes people say they need to use their hands to really learn something. That's sort of true. What's really true is they need to be able to move around it and see it in 3D because mm-hmm. that's how our brains really like snap on something. That's, we have two eyes when we make a memory. We have two eyes worth of saving memory. When you look at something flat, it's like, it's not even like just happening, it; you're actually losing the depth information. So you're losing a whole dimension of information about something. Now, granted, we can learn good in 2D, but we can learn a lot better in 3D. So anything where there's learning that involves, let's say, anatomy—like you want to learn about the inside of a human body—you want to spatially annotate, which means put like a little label next to a kidney and say this is what the kidney does. And you know what? If I asked you to point out where the kidney is on your body, could you do it really quickly?
1: <laughs> probably. Not.
0: Maybe. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but if you saw a 3D model of the internal, you probably do it very fast. Um, these sorts of things, to the for us, we can make 3D models of things. And, uh, and then, then there's also the concepts that are very uh, amorphous, or they require a lot of abstract thinking, like the structure of an atom. You know, uh, the, the way that most people think of it, the, the Bohr model, is like a series of rings, because that's how you can show it on a piece of paper. But that's not how it actually looks. Right. The, the atoms do not actually have a 2D flat shape. They're actually a little bit more complex and cool than that. Uh, but you, but you, we really need some sort of 3D visualization tool to be able to learn things effectively when they come to any STEM sort of subject, nursing subjects, And then there's a whole category of training. Think of like if you're learning to dispose of a bomb or if you're doing something that requires something that might be risky or hard to disrupt mm. Being able to do those things in the real world in a context which is analogous to the actual environment where you'd be faced with that challenge is... Is really critical to being able to train that effectively. There's a saying from armed services: we don't rise to the level of our aspirations; we sink to the level of our training. Meaning, if you haven't done the thing before many times, when you know ish hits the fan, you're going to be just going back to whatever you've done before. You're not going to be like, uh, you know, channeling your inner savior. You're going to be doing whatever thing you've done before. If that's like turn tail and run, you're going to turn tail and run. So you have to be able to train in these situations, these analogous situations, if you want to really learn something. That's true for, like I mentioned, bond disposal. That's true for emergency preparedness. That's true for even conflict resolution. You know, you ever had to have a calm, hard conversation at work. Imagine being able to run through that several yeah. times in a in an analogous situation. So the whole genre of training and learning is an area that is ripe for disruption, and there's already tons of companies doing stuff like that. Now, where EnClue comes into play, where we really help move the needle, is instead of being a single size solution for a single for, for a single problem domain, like we're gonna help you create a training scenario for just working on this battery. Uh, what Enklu allows folks to do is with simple drag and drop components, kind of like Figma or Canva, they can create their whole own genre of content. So it's, it's a low mm-hmm. code solution, which means people can create dynamic, interactive applications without writing a single line of code, which means that we don't necessarily need to even know how our metaverse creators are getting value from it. And we do, because we get close to them. And I'll give you some examples. Yeah. Like at Concordia University, uh, they've built a concussion training and simulation tool. Talk about a scenario that you don't want to train on in the real world. You want to like get a, a concussion really fast to see what it's like. Uh, but but what's, what's really important about this is that if, if athletes don't know what it's like to get a concussion, they might not report correctly to their coach or their nurse that they, they have one. And even worse, if coaches don't know, what it's like to see someone that's having a concussion, they might say, you get back in there, you just got your bell rung. And that's super dangerous. So making sure that people have the accurate training for something like this is absolutely a critical human need. But I'll tell you what, I would never have thought to build a concussion training simulation program with Enclue. Fortunately, we empowered some professors at the university, very bright professors, And they said, oh, hey, you know what? We know all about this problem domain. In fact, one of them actually wrote the book on concussion training simulation for the NCAA and said, would it be possible if we did X, Y, and Z? And we said, it's totally possible. All you need to do is drag in these assets and connect up the dots. And now they're actually running this with students. That's, That's one simple example. Another one is like a cardiac assessment tool. Similarly, this is for cardiologists that want to see an actual dynamic heart beating and what it looks like when it's in various air conditions right? It's not very easy to invite in seven people from the street that all have various issues with their heart, open up their chest, start getting graphics and take a look at. It. That's hard to do. What is easy to do is to replicate that animation in 3D and allow the surgeons in training to learn what it's like and then even to like press buttons to see what happens when you make small changes. It allows them that ability to experiment in a safe way without needing to involve Patients or forms or insurance or any of the challenging stuff you need to do if there's actual people involved.
1: Okay, Ray, you are the perfect person to ask this question to. So, future of work and the metaverse. What are we looking at in this combination of things? We have seen the demos of, of Zuck with Meta and how they are like these avatars on the screen. We've seen that, it's been made fun of a lot of times, but we have one vision of like the metaverse in the future. I'm curious for you, Ray, what do you see as the future of work and the metaverse and where this kind of ties in?
0: Yeah, first I'll say that I applaud founders, especially wildly successful founders who have a vision for the future and are willing to bet big and and risk a lot in order to achieve that vision so i'll start there then i will say that it is comically not the case that we will be wearing vr headsets to replace meetings um i don't think for a second that i want to put a vr device on to give me a better experience of meeting with you because Again, back to evolution, and I, I like to think about humans very you know, naturally, um, we've evolved for a long time to have a lot of information coming through. We have our eyes, we have our ears, we have our posture, we have the subtle contextual cues of air hitting our, our hands and our, our backs as we're standing and sitting. When you try to replace all of that, there's this concept in computer 3D graphics that becomes very important. And I think a lot of people know what this is, and they probably experienced it, but they don't know the word for it. There is a word for this. It's called the uncanny valley. And, and it comes from this idea in computer graphics that your perception of reality and the, the realness of a given thing are linearly correlated until you get very close to reality. And then it drops through the floor. If you're a graph about these things, so imagine with me for a second there's a graph on one axis, is how real something is. And the other graph is how much we perceive it to be real. At first, when it's not very real, we don't perceive it to be very real. If it's like a South Park character, we don't think it looks real, whatever. Then it gets a little bit more real. And it's a Pixar movie. Okay, uh, they, they look more real. They look like more real characters. They've got real emotion, right? like, this is real. And sometimes you might even forget that they're not real. Um, but then you get to something uh, that, that feels weird. And uh, there's, there's, you know, you've seen movies like the very first Final Fantasy movie is a great example of this, where like way back in the day, they just learned 3D rendering, and they put so much time and energy into it. Uh, And and Polar Express is another example where people say they look like kind of like mannequins, they look like dead people, they look like something's (laughs) off about them. Well, the question is, why does that look dead? And Pixar look real, even though Pixar doesn't, it's not trying to look real, it's trying to look exaggerated, it's trying to look solid. It's because of the way we measure reality when we are looking at reality from zero like south park we're saying okay from zero you're you're you know you're two or three out of a scale of ten to reality when we're looking at something that is very close to reality all of a sudden our brains which from our birth have been evolving to perceive slight differences they're going to notice every little thing that's off they're going to start measuring things from their delta from reality not how close they are but how far away they are from reality that's why this graph goes up The Uncanny Valley pops in, it's fun, Google searches, Uncanny Valley, as soon as you get to reality, boom, drops to the floor until you're actually at reality. The closer you're at reality, the further away it looks until you're actually real. And this is the hurdle that that meta has to climb if they ever want people to meet in virtual reality. And the the extra, the, the challenging part about this is too, is that you're not just trying to replicate reality, you're trying to replicate reality with a box on your head. And it's hard to understate how uncomfortable that can be. And this is from a guy who actually sells boxes to put on people's heads. Um, but we do it a different way. We add to reality. And I think that's, that's where the real metaverse is going. So, so do I think that we're going to spend the vast majority of our time replacing our reality or escaping reality? No. I do think that VR and the metaverse is great for things like meditation and exercise and training in certain circumstances. But in general, I am what you'd call more of an augmented reality maxi. I think that the real metaverse is in the real world. It's going to be adding 3D interactions, contextualized information uh, to the existing processes that we have today. We're going to take what works and add to it. We're not going to replace it with something entirely
1: different. To that point, I mean, do you think it's going to be more of like, as we've seen these these bigger headset type of things versus something like, Google Glass, a while ago, try it. There's new versions of that. But, like, versus glasses, and people have that on just to have an, another screen, uh, different information on the, like, what, because what, you're in it. I'm just curious that you think about this more. Uh, what do you think it's going to be?
0: Yeah, totally. So, so, Google Glass, I think that you can look at that as a masterclass in over marketing a product, <laughs> in that the really? vision of the kit <laughs> of Google Glass looks amazing. You know, if they actually delivered on what the vision of that product was, we'd all be yeah. wearing them today. Um, But but the the marketing got way ahead of the product and what they actually delivered wasn't what the the marketing showed. So in in retrospect, a lot of people kind of think like, oh, you know, augmented reality is never gonna work because there's that clear example of what should have been good when really what happened was, what they sold was this idea that you'd be able to have contextual information everywhere. That's not what it really was. There's a key distinction between having a heads up display. That's like what the old fighter pilots used to have back in the 90s versus an augmented reality display. It's a very important distinction. And the distinction is that a heads-up display stays relative to you, no matter where your head is looking. And that's what Google Glass was doing. If it had a little piece of text up here, it was going to stay up here, no matter where I'm looking. So it's not actually in the real world. What it's really like doing is like writing. Imagine taking a little note and writing it on the on a piece of paper and then sticking it to your glasses. That's what it's like doing. And you know why I know that's what it's like doing? Because I know the person who developed that product, and that's exactly how they started it, and that's exactly what they shipped with. They paper prototyped <laughs> it using literal paper that they taped to glasses and said, "Like, is this useful enough?" And you know, for better or worse, they said yes, and they ran with it. Um, now, that's very different than what I think is actually useful, which is actually adding information to the real world. But like when you add information to the real world, it requires a new level of uh, compute because now, if I put, if I wrote a sticky note, for example and I put it in the real world and it stayed there, oh my gosh, that's super helpful. Why? Because sticky notes are super helpful. In fact, if it wasn't for like, then like hanging around and looking dirty, people would have sticky notes everywhere. If you could like turn them on and off, that'd be super useful. If adding contextual information, especially interactive contextual information. Wow. that I mean, if you could like, instead of having a, you know, look at your fridge and go online and choose different things. If you could see like an empty spot where there should be a milk carton, and you press the milk buy button and just did it for you automatically, oh my gosh! Like that's the future, right? <laughs> you can't do that with a HUD. That's not a thing yeah. you could do with HUD, but you could do with augmented reality. So I think the real question is, when augmented reality can become affordable and accessible enough to businesses, such that you can start to replace real-world things in a value-add way, it will start to take on a new life of its own. And how far away are are we from that? Well, you already have companies like Snap releasing very compelling consumer glasses. There's a major caveat, though. They only last 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, they've made one of the simple trade-offs, which is if you want to have them be small, like actual glasses like this, uh, you need to have a small form factor, which means not a whole lot of room for battery life. So what we need really is a step function, uh, increase in the battery life and the, the, uh, the, the optics such that consumers or like low end business folks, uh, who, where you can afford to have thousands of these devices out there per company, um, where that's going to happen. And how far we are from that? Not that far. You know, it's not like cold fusion where it's going to be 10 years out for every 10 years. Um, I would say within 10 years, we'll definitely have people replacing their smartphone with smart glasses as their primary computing device. These, gla- these things are never going away. These are going to be the super cute computers in our pocket for a long time. There's going to be yeah. things you can do with these that you can't do with glasses. Just like, I don't think laptops are going away either. I think they're, they're going to be the super computer that you bring on your lap that are going to do things you can't do with your phone. But soon you'll add glasses and you'll probably talk to them with very smart artificial intelligence and interface with them with very limited augmented reality interfaces. And that'll happen within 10 years. And that'll be the transition as profound as the iPhone. I think Tim Cook says it right. great. It's like, The AR is going to change everything. It's going to change the way we communicate. It's going to change the way we uh, transact. It's going to change the way we do commerce. And it's going to be as profound a shift as as the smartphone was. You know, can you remember life before the smartphone? Uh, Very different. Very different than today. You have to remember how to get places.
1: MapQuest, man. That's all that MapQuest. Printing out the maps for MapQuest, finding the directions. But it's interesting to see that progression from even looking at the computers, like the desktop, to then, to your point, having this computer in our pockets. It's basically an extension of us because it is on us all the time. And then you look at something like an Apple Watch, where there's a different form factor, the watch version of this. Now, you like I said, you Google Glass, and then we'll see where this progresses, which is going to be interesting. I know we don't have that much time, so I'm curious. This is like a last question here. With n then. Raise some money for N-Clue, trying to build a company here. Where does this get to with N-Clue then? Where where does clue end up? Uh, I'm curious about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So with N-Clue, we've got a very strong thesis on what's really going to move the market. And you know, I'd like to pin my my hat on we're not gonna do it, the market's gonna do it, but we're gonna help the market move forward. So we've got a very uh, simple core technology which empowers creators to to build something. And I mean simple, is not like it's on the back end simple. There's lots of ones and zeros making it happen. <laughs> But it's yeah. simple as in regular folks who are not technical can build with it. Yeah. And, and our thesis is when you combine a simple and powerful interface with a strong marketplace dynamics, uh, the market's going to generate a, a positive feedback loop and we'll start seeing a proliferation of new use cases and value-add activities we had before. And we're already starting to see that. So Enclue is building essentially a marketplace for the creation and utilization of this 3D content. And we've already got incredible partners and clients ranging from Microsoft to fever up some of the biggest names IP out there. So for us, you know, we've been doing this for you know, quite some years. We raised our seed in 2019 uh, You know, got higher education clients during the pandemic. And now we've seen just a massive upswell and surge of interest and uh, revenue uh, from kind of the convergence of the experienced economy and the creative clinic. People are going outside, putting on their devices, having mind-blowing experiences in museums, in galleries, in exhibits, in their businesses, in their schools. And our mission really is to empower the creators of that next generation of spatial computing.
1: It's exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where this all goes. With Enclue, with obviously, we're behind you at Vitalize as well. Where's the best place for people to learn more about Enclue and connect with you if they'd like to?
0: Best place to go is xlue.com. We keep it updated pretty regularly. And uh, if you happen to be in Chicago or San Francisco or soon to be Orlando, definitely come check out one of our consumer-facing demo halls. They're called Verse Immersive. Best way to experience this is to put a headset on. Most people say it is a transformational experience. I stand behind that. And if you'd like a personal demo or tour, I'd love to give you one as well.
1: I will say, I saw the videos and also read some of the reviews and people do rave about it. So (laughs) it's exciting. People go check it out. Ray, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. Always a pleasure. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to Vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at VitalizeVC, or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.